I said, no, this is the scaffolding with which I'm going to get out of bed every morning and make sense of my life. This is Meaningful Medicine. In a challenging and unpredictable world with high burnout rates, this is a podcast where incredible individuals share their most meaningful patient experiences and focus on those moments of positivity and joy that sparked their love of healthcare and changed the way they practice medicine. Hi, I'm Nicole Hohenstein, and I'm an emergency medicine resident at UCSF. Hi, I'm Shiva Kayambashi. I'm a doctor and professor of family and community medicine at UCSF. We're the co-hosts of Meaningful Medicine, We created this podcast to highlight stories of healthcare professionals who have found a sense of meaning, resilience, and joy in their work. Hi, Shiva. How are you doing? Hi, Nicole. I'm doing great. I'm especially excited about our guest today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm very excited. We're going to be tackling the topic of joy in medicine today, which I am so excited about. I'd love to start off hearing, really, what is it about medicine that gives you joy? I love the question. I love tackling joy. We're going to embrace joy in a very big way. I My joy in medicine comes from just what I love so much, which is that I love caring for patients. And I love the idea in practice that everything we get to do in medicine is an expression of our minds and our spirits and our hearts. And that every encounter that we have, it's such a privilege because we have an opportunity to think and to process and to try to do things that are best for our patient. And then in that same encounter, we also have the opportunity to connect and to heal and to support in a loving way, because that makes as much difference to a patient as does the medical knowledge part that we offer. And so one of my favorite quotes that I learned a long time ago is from a book written by Lebanese poet named Khalil Gibran in the 1920s. And he wrote one of my favorite quotes, which is that work is love made visible. And I just can't think of any better way to describe the work we do in medicine. Let me ask you, what do you love most about medicine? What gives you the joy that you want in medicine? I really like this question. I, you know, as I'm going through intern year, I can imagine that my answer to this question may change and evolve over time. But I definitely think that my favorite part of medicine and where I find joy is in my patients and hearing their stories uncovering, you know, where they get resilience and learning about their lives really is just such a privilege and I'm humbled every day. And I've always really enjoyed community service and getting to know my community and giving back. And I love that in my role as a future emergency medicine physician, I have community service really wrapped up and intertwined with my daily job, which I think is so cool. And it's really a privilege. And I think that I'm so excited to be in a position where I'm so excited to go to work every day. And I think not everyone can say that. Absolutely. So Dr. Ricky Polykov is our guest today. Dr. Ricky Polykov is an amazing integrative women's health doctor, and she is a UCSF School of Medicine graduate and a graduate of UCSF's residency in OBGYN. She's had her own practice for over 35 years, and she will be discussing how she found her love of medicine and how she maintains her joy with her patients. Welcome, Dr. Ricky Polikov. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to join you both. Well, we're so happy to have you on the podcast. Uh, We like to start out each episode by asking our guests to, in short, 
share a meaningful moment from early on in your training that was particularly formative or defining experience? Well, I honestly think as a woman just walking into the room in the GYN clinic and looking at these women's faces light up, I realized, whoa, <laughs> I definitely have an advantage being kind of a small woman seeing women, although I actually thought I'd be a family practice doctor, but that experience of the patient absolutely being excited that, oh, it was a girl. And of course, when I went to medical school, about 6% of medical students were women. So it was a very unusual thing to have a woman walk into the clinic room. But see, I, I found joy so early on, and I probably carried the same fear that most medical students carry into your early clinical experiences, which is you just don't feel like you'll know enough or be enough to, to help this person or meet their need or make a difference. And honestly, when I was probably in my internship on the cancer ward, and I, I was pretty sure a lot of these women were going to die, and it hit me that they would never be alone when I was their doctor, that that's really what terrifies ill people is the journey by yourself. And uh, it exhilarated me so much to think, wow, okay, I may not know everything there is to know about ovarian cancer or management of pain, but I'm doing my best and I really admired these women and I could tell they felt admired and loved, you know, and it just, I felt so happy that that was really sort of my angel. Now we would say, that's my superpower. But in those days, it just very quietly made me feel much less insecure and much more confident that it was my caring for the patient that was the most important thing. I love that. And you know, the journey of medical education in school is so much about learning the content. There is so much material to be learned and mastered. And we all remember, and it is like drinking from a fire hydrant. We mostly, as we're learning, feel inadequate in the knowledge area. Uh, we feel often like imposters in terms of our knowledge base because it's never enough what we learn. And we come into medical school knowing fully how to be present and how to care. But it isn't so much the being present and the caring energy that's encouraged for us to learn. It's really something that we don't feel very encouraged to learn and often feel like we need to keep quiet or hidden while we are really learning the knowledge-based part of medicine. So I'm wondering, in your journey in medical school, in your education, did you feel like your angel or superpower of being present and being caring was something that you really had to hide inside and keep from other people in light of your learning new knowledge? Or was your caring energy something that was encouraged and supported by your community of teachers? Well, of course, it was not embraced by my community of medical people. That was just so sad. I mean, I look back, my journey through UCSF was not a happy journey. In fact, there's an anecdote, which is in this book called Fearless Women. 
and it's got wonderful people like Joni Mitchell and all famous actors. And I'm so honored. Lynn Twist is in there, really, really awesome people. And I'm the only doctor in the book. And we were asked to give two pictures, one when we were young. So the picture I chose was my last year of medical school, the picture that our student photographer took actually in his apartment before we left to go do portraits in Golden Gate Park. But he had this totally, I thought, absolute male chauvinist pig poster of an almost naked Italian woman with two halves of a French bread in front of her naked breasts and a Vespa scooter. And it was a calendar, like a pinup girl. Anyway, so I held Harrison's textbook of internal medicine and an atlas of anatomy in front of my chest <laughs> and sort of mocked it up. So I chose that picture because I thought that's probably about as feminist funny as they come. But the other aspect that is highlighted in this very short vignette was how I got in trouble in medical school at UC for sitting on the patient's bed. Now, it may be different now, but there were no places to be. And of course, the beds were pretty close together. These are shared rooms. And so you had the curtain. And so if you're standing between the curtain and the patient's bed, you're towering over him or her. These were mostly women. And so I would sit on the far corner so that I'd be an eye level with the patient that felt better to me. So I wasn't, you know, powering over. So I got in trouble by the senior resident on the service. It was pretty bad. And he, you know, shame me and don't do that. Then he caught me doing it again. This is like the army. So I get reported and I learn from the chief resident of the internal medicine residency program that I am now on probation, academic probation. Like, you know, you didn't obey the drill sergeant. So that vignette I find really funny because years later, and I think I've related this to you, Shiva, when I taught in the introduction of clinical medicine and you had that giant binder, <laughs> in that is a whole thing about not positioning yourself towering over the patient to pull up a chair and get to eye level. So, or you could even sit on the patient's bed. So these are things I was very happy to see in the intervening years that things had changed at my alma mater. And at the same time, when you ask me, was I supported in being kind and thoughtful to patients? You know, a simple answer would be, no, nah, hell no. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, I love how you had the forethought to think about how, how can I relate to this patient? How can I make them the most comfortable? And then now it is so embedded in the UCSF curriculum, all about you get in trouble if you stand over your patient, you know, it's the opposite. And so it's so funny how it's a 360 and how you really paved the way for that to say, no, this is actually the right way to do it, the right way to practice medicine. Yeah. The other thing, by the end of my internship, I realized, you know, I am not God. I can't change the fact that bad diseases happen to really nice people. They don't deserve, no one deserves these things. I can't change that, but I can always help my patient heal. And again, by the end of my internship, I had this little quiet mantra, I can help her heal and that's what matters. And I will always know that, honestly, so simple. And it, that conversation, I think so many more people are having today but there was no one with whom I ever had that conversation in the next three years when I was back at UC. 
in the OBGYN residency. Sounds like what others may view as a weakness and you being kind and caring and compassionate probably turned out to be one of your biggest strengths. It's who I am. And that's the other big learning experience I've had, which is a bit heartbreaking and it may happen to you, Nicole, as you journey, but people go into medicine for a lot of reasons that have very little to do with being of service to humanity. So I was that idealistic one, just, you know, I mean, my medical school essay is exactly who I am and what I've done. And so when I learned that, and I went to medical school during the Vietnam War, that a lot of the guys were there because it kept them out of the draft. That was pretty heartbreaking. Like, oh man, they should save these precious places for people that actually want to help people. So the era, the, the whole selection process I know has changed and improved, but there's a, an aspect of your colleagues who are in medicine that can be rather heartbreaking. For example, people bring their wounds from their childhood and at least my experience in college as an undergrad at UC Berkeley, and you know, I love to learn, but really even UC Berkeley was pretty brutal. It certainly was not what I would consider a supportive collegial student reinforced atmosphere. I did have study buddies, guess what? All females at UC, <laughs> but the whole environment of competition to get through this very narrow funnel, which is called admission to medical school, I really think it does not promote collaboration. And I think that's a big problem in medicine and the healthcare system. We've chosen people who are very good at competing for themselves. So we've chosen a skill set. And now we want to redirect your awareness and say, no, actually, uh, we like the fact you're really smart and you're dedicated and devoted, but we want you, in fact, to be part of a team. And so it's going to take several generations of doctors to see that we are all in this together. We need to collaborate with all the allied health professionals and not just like, well, we've got to get a physical therapist on the case because the lady broke her hip. No, it's like, aren't you thrilled that there are these people who have a wonderful specific knowledge how to go from zero to 60 with a new hip prosthesis? And so again, it's an attitude of respectful regard that I kind of thought everybody had. And like, I'm the one that since I can remember would always change a bedpan for a patient if I happened to walk in the room and they needed help. And often again, in those days, they call you nurse. And I would say very warmly, I'm actually not a nurse. I'm actually, you know, one of the the residents or whatever, one of the doctors, but no, 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 I'm happy to help you. I'm here, please let me help you. So of course, what does that do? It also helps you have great rapport with the nursing staff. And they're the ones that I think I modeled my relationships to patients on. And in fact, when I've had students in my office who think they wanna to go to medical school, I'll say, yeah, you wanna to relate to patients the way I do, you might wanna become a nurse practitioner. When I asked you the question, were you encouraged at all? I totally tongue in cheek, because I don't think even today it's not encouraged, let alone let's look back at the era when you were in medical school. And it, medical education has evolved a lot, like Nicole was mentioning, for the better. A lot of things are for the better, for the focus on relationship and 
communication, that's much more a part of integrated medical education curriculum. And I'm so glad about that. The piece about, you know, being warm and loving, that's not really something that can honestly be taught. I do think it's more about who you are, as you said, and the part about, you know, you either have it or don't, and you either are encouraged or it's suppressed. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, but the journey tends to be that more of a suppressive experience about your your inner loving being, whether, yeah, however that comes out. Thank you for sharing that. And I've always looked up to you because you just exude joy and love. And I just think that the way that you exude joy and you're always so fully present with everyone, whether it's a patient or one of your staff or someone on the street, you always give the best of care. You always give the kindness and you listen and you're present and even in really difficult times. And so I've also noticed that it's not like you're becoming depleted, that you seem to get so much from that giving. Your joy seems to derive from the giving, the giving of love, the giving of presence, the giving of care gives back to you the joy. I think joy is one of those words that is difficult to define. Joy can be very personal and how we each experience it is very personal. But as Shiv and I are trying our best to find a definition that we feel suits the meaning of joy, we go back to a book called The Book of Joy, which chronicles dialogues between two leaders of our time, the Dalai Lama and Archbishop uh, Desmond Tutu, in The Book of Joy. They say that the joy is not just a series of moments of happiness, but rather it is much deeper and more enduring, that happy moments. The Dalai Lama says, joy is a way of approaching the world and also taking care of others, helping others, ultimately is a way to discover your own joy and to have a happy life. The Book of Joy is really a wonderful one. If, if you haven't read it yet, anyone in our audience, I recommend it. So Ricky, Nicole and I would like to really focus on your bright and loving, joyful energy and your attitude. This is who you are. So can we start by asking you, how did your joyful nature show itself to you and your family or anybody in your early years? Well, my mother told me, not early in my life, I'm sure I was already a doctor and she just sort of said it in passing over dinner when she was visiting. But she said, honey, you were born sunny side up, as in like sunshine and joy. In obstetrics, of course, that means something else. It's an occiput posterior presentation, but she meant cheerful. And I actually, I'm going to relate an incident that happened in my life that I don't even know if you recall this, Shiva, because it happened in 1973. So I'm all excited. I'm about to start medical school. The woman who was my role model pediatrician was diagnosed with ovarian cancer in August. She gets palliative care. She's only 51, but you know, when you're 22, she was older. But still, I honestly did not know what palliative care meant. She was having treatment. Then my sister, who was 26, jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. September 4th, 1973. I started medical school end of September of 1973. So I had so much grief, so much shock and loss. And I had to somehow fit this horrendous event. By today's diagnostic criteria, we would say my sister, who is super gifted, absolute zealot, for kindness and peace and civil rights and like 
other kids do fun stuff for their summer vacation. My sister bought a Greyhound bus ticket to the South to register voters in Mississippi and Alabama. Absolute zealot for human rights. When her literally African-American Ghana graduate student boyfriend basically tricked her and he and his brother moved out when she was at work one day, that was, that was just too much. So looking back on that, I want to include that because I think it made me much stronger to bring joy, to bring kindness. You never know what's going on inside someone. And so for me, she was different. She was what you would call quirky. You know, she sewed her own clothes. She didn't fit in. She had the dream of so much creativity in her life, but was kind of a nerd. And again, it took me a long time to figure this out. Obviously, a profound loss like that and the effect on your parents. It's ineffable to contemplate that the world goes on when your own life has hit this impasse. So struggling with that, but also having my medical school professors tell me that they thought I should drop out. It was too much to handle. So now I had another battle on my hands. Like I said, no, and I obviously convinced them. I said, no, this is the scaffolding with which I'm going to get out of bed every morning and make sense of my life and hopefully become a better doctor and maybe maybe I'll go into a you know part of medicine where I pay big attention to mood but that event I do think kind of strengthened my core of kindness I bring that up because even though that's not joyful but something happens in our lives that we look back on we think oh that's that's the event and so her death it really colored my whole career because I want to be certain that I'm the kind of sensitive doctor that people, women people, since that's who I see, feel very comfortable being honest with me. Don't shine it up. If you're bummed, if you feel lost, lonely, disconnected, it is the thing I want you to talk about in your office visit. Don't save it. I want to first start off by saying I'm so sorry to hear about your sister and I really appreciate you sharing her story. And it sounds like she was a very special person and had a very special impact on you. You mentioned something about when you're in the hospital, you don't know what everyone else has experienced and what emotions are inside. And I remember the first day, the very first day of UCSF Medical School, they show us this video. And the first iteration of the video is silence. And all you see is people walking the halls, smiling, walking past each other. The second iteration of the video is you get to see what's actually inside the little thought bubbles and what people are thinking about, what they're going through, and the vast amount of different emotions, different experiences. Some people are grieving. Some people are very mad about some things. You know, some people just had a baby and are, are joyous. I can imagine our listeners would be really interested, having been through a very traumatic experience in your family, having to go back into medical school, how did you deal with those emotions and not let them bleed into your patient encounters? 
I actually got a master's in thanatology. So what I did was a study, and at the time Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was big, and I'd also been a member of Physicians for Social Responsibility with Helen Caldicott. I was definitely using that trauma, that loss, in a way that helped me understand the stages of grief and loss. And also at the time, people were emerging, Ms. way before Deepak Chopra. But I think that the actual study of death helped me understand much more about death. Because this type of experience when it's suicide of a 26-year-old healthy person, that's very different from the death that we attend to in the ICU or you know, the oncology ward where someone's been ill for a long time. And usually, usually they're older. I always felt after that, spending two years really with a side project, so to speak, of trying to make sense of death, that it gave me a real leg up towards the end of my medical school. We had a woman who was 35, which of course, again, in a medical school now, you're maybe a ripe old 26 yourself. And she was in the pulmonary ICU at UC with, quote, lupus lung. And she died. And, you know, I'd spent a lot of weeks knowing her husband, her two kids. And, I mean, the finality of that. Everybody else got better in her age group and with her disease. And I just felt, wow, where the care comes now is her family. And so that sense continuity with her now widowed husband was actually, I think, improved and enriched by my own loss, facing it, embracing it, working through it. Shiva and I both shared our joy in medicine and what we love about it. And I'd love to hear really a story that you keep going back to that gives you a lot of joy in medicine. Oh, it's definitely the joy of knowing that I've made a difference in someone's life. I always feel better if I help someone else. And the other thing, I was just having a discussion with a colleague that I take care of. She's a physical therapist. And, you know, we're both of an age where, I'm sorry to say, you get a lot of aches and pains from overuse arthritis or whatever. So I was saying to her, you know, when I'm at work, I don't notice my little pain at the base of my thumbs or my back pain. And sometimes, you know, once I sit down and I'm just by myself and I may be doing some charts or something, well, then I start to notice, oh, I need to lift up my ribs because yeah, that really helps anyway. But when I'm in that zone, it's a meditation. The day disappears. I'm just with the patient, her life, and I'm astounded by what a difference it makes. There are some obstacles that get in the way of joy. For example, stress, exhaustion, feeling overwhelmed, feeling weighed down by the empathy that we have for the pain and sorrows of our patients. Those are some examples. Dr. Polikova, how do you maintain your joy in everyday practice? And really specifically, could you share what specific processes or practices that help you hold on to your joy and love, especially in the times when things just get too busy or stressful? I do think it helps to have a practice 
of remembering these beautiful moments. I have such a flow to my practice with patients. And what I really love is the journey that you get to have with these human beings just like me who are fragile, tender bodies, gifted to still be here. And instead of looking at every bad thing that happens as, oh, another bit of life is hard and then you die. No, we're amazing in that we have billions and billions of cells that are mostly very well behaved. And that to me is something I probably reflect on with at least one person every week. The other thing I say, remember that we have lots and lots of data that show that being bummed and being cynical and being negative, we can actually measure the adverse effects on your neurochemistry and your micromolecular biology. So you can tell your telomeres when you're stressed and grumpy, they get shorter faster. So how much hard data do I need to say, okay, I got a bit, get a better mood. <laughs> it's like, okay, so what's the practice that's going to help me like leavening for bread? I need to lighten up. I see so much sadness to take that little moment and appreciate the joy. I think we all are made of this kind of optimistic fabric. And I think we do see life more of glass half full rather than half empty. And I think some people can get bogged down with the frustrations of every day and miss those little pockets of joy. And I wonder, you know, as someone who is so optimistic and finds so much joy, can you share a moment in time where that has been challenged and where you have felt like you lost your joy. Really the end of my residency at UC, I saw, again, these are the early years where you see the business of medicine encumbering our care of patients. And they were reorganizing the clinics and they were gonna make a whole new system with attendings having to come in and just stand there to be able to sign Medi-Cal or Medicare forms. And the unhappiness in the faculty, oh my gosh. And honestly, I re remember having this dream of these converging stainless steel walls in this almost infinitely long hallway. And I woke up and it was like I, my shoulders were trapped. <laughs> between the stainless steel panels. Well, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to interpret that dream. But that was really my, my most discouraged moment. And it was really kind of prescient in terms of what was going to come in that dynamic tension of seeing the practice of medicine being increasingly controlled by insurance companies. So this is sort of the, the moment where I've said many times, people, patients are as wonderful as ever. The system is horrible right now. You're going, and I've said this because I have residents in my office now and then. I say, you're gonna enter a system that doesn't feel kind or caring sometimes.
I go to the mat to get the right imaging. For example, doing a lot of breast cancer high-risk screening. It's a big hassle. It takes a lot of time. Again, I'm not a managed care doctor. I also don't see people five days a week. So on my day off, I'll do other things. I'll be on hold. But that's when I get these peer-to-peer certifications with the permission number. Okay, you can be grumpy and say, what a waste of time on my day off. Nope, that's important. That's an ethical, absolutely essential guideline for this woman's history. And so I get joy out of, I know I'm going to wrestle this person to the mat. Yeah, you could say, well, what a waste of your time. No, it's not a waste of my time. So I think part of it is how you frame your action. We do a lot of things in medicine that are very repetitive. In a way, you could say it's kind of relaxing. Repetition, look at mantras, look at all these other things. So part of what I do is I actually physically calm myself with breathing, breath. To me, breath, we are so blessed. I appreciate the billions of cells in my tired little body that are behaving themselves. And so I give them a compliment at least once a day. You know, these are things, they sound corny, but it's true. It's a very simple joy for me. That's my nature. I'm very blessed. And if it weren't my nature, I would work on it. That's why we're here. I've always felt we get to live so long to help ourselves grow, you know, soul growth. And I can choose what I'm going to focus on. And I choose to look at the shining light and the healing path. And I don't think that I could do it perfectly as a medical student or a resident. But that's the beauty of once you're out on your own, no matter how onerous a healthcare system is, it is better than residency. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to hear that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. As we wrap up the podcast today, I'd love for you to share any advice that you have on how to maintain joy in medicine. I've thought a lot about that because I do see a fair number of students and residents. I think the most important thing, honestly, is to reflect on the big picture, you know, what you really believe in. And I think for younger trainees, it's so essential in a sense to reflect every day a little bit on who am I. So I believe strongly, and it's just been innate. I'm a spiritual being having a human life. And if we can sort of get out of our tired body, not focus on whatever derogatory critical remark, there's a lot of unsupportive, accidental, but comments that happen, you're trying to do a perfect job. Well, it's impossible to be perfect. So it's this dynamic tension appreciating that it's my sincerity, it's the the authenticity with which I approach my work. That's my greatest gift. I'm really doing my best and I will always do my best. And that's the pat on the back. You know, I'm not cutting corners. I'm never gonna pretend I know the lab data if I didn't actually see it on, you know, the patient's chart notes, etc. So that standard of ethical continuity 
and practice, we have to quietly give ourselves the compliment. We're, we're not going to get it. It's not like high school where the English teacher says, that's a really great poem, <laughs> you know. So internal self-soothing, that's a practice. You know, there are a lot of opportunities to do something quiet for yourself. And because breath is such a beautiful, simple metaphor, as well as a physically calming experience, these little breathing practices, you know, inhale six counts, exhale six counts, inhale six, hold two, all that stuff, it, it helps calm your mind, get rid of the monkey mind. So hopefully you've had some introduction to this in your medical school training, but to carry that personal practice. And for me, the sort of quiet study of Buddhism as a parallel path Again, it's a practice, it's not a religion, but it helps that calm center. I think it's a great energy restoration for those in training, just as it is for me ending my 41st year of practice in OBGYN. That is so incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I know I, I learned so much and I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's been a delight to be with you, Nicole, and again with you, Shiva. Thank you for tuning in today and allowing us to be one of your meaningful moments. Please rate, review, and subscribe, and share with friends, family, and colleagues. Meaningful Medicine was produced by Shiva Kayambashi, Nicole Hohenstein, David Elkin, Nikki Elkin, Aheli Chattopadhyay, and Leigh Kodama. Editing by Nicole Hohenstein, Nikki Elkin, and Leigh Kodama. Intro and closing by Daniel Wentling. On Meaningful Medicine, we are careful to ensure that all stories are compliant with healthcare privacy laws and details may have been changed to ensure patient confidentiality. All views expressed are of the person speaking and not their employer.